1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. This is the Academic Life Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler. Today, we're joined by Dr. Michelle Boyd, who's going to share her book, Becoming the Writer You
1: Already Are. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me, Christina.
0: I am so glad that you're here. I am so glad that you wrote this book and that you're going to bring it to the attention of our listeners. But before we dive into the book, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. I am the founder of Inkwell Academic Writing Retreats. And our work there is focused on helping scholars overcome the fear and the self-doubt that get in the way of just loving your writing life. So that's what I do now. Before I started Inkwell, I was a tenured associate professor of African-American studies and political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And that means that I've, you know, I have been through the tenure process. I went through the process of, obviously, because I'm a doctor, getting my, you know, finishing my dissertation. And um, it that experience captures, I think, the third thing I always say about myself when I introduce myself, which is that I am someone who struggles with their writing, and I have done so um, pretty much most of my graduate school and postgraduate school academic life. So that I mention that because it really influences how I coach, uh, but I also mention it because we, we tend to have these lovely introductions that say all these wonderful things about us, but they never point out the struggle that's behind all of our achievement. And uh, that's something that people with privilege and people with, you know, a protected job status and power can do that I think is important uh, to change the way that we interact with one another around our writing. And you tell us...
0: A bit in the introduction about what inspired you to write this book, it sounds like the original inspiration came when you were thinking back to when you were a grad student and the book that you wish you'd had. Can you tell us about your journey to write this book?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. It was a really long journey, actually, because I the ideas for the book came long before I was thinking about a book it really uh, started i think it must have been in 2002 or 2003 when i was a junior faculty member and realized in my writing group that i was always missing my deadlines and kind of got this assignment from the other members of my writing group to figure out how long it it took to write, you know, a standard journal article, given my teaching load and what my writing pace was. And in trying to answer that question, I just sort of naturally started elaborating this vision of, you know, what is actually a draft for me when I'm trying to figure out how long it takes to write a draft? What what do I mean by draft? Because we mean different things. And what are the stages of a draft? And I began thinking of those stages as akin to the process of having a baby, you know, getting pregnant and having a baby. And so it really was a very uh, personal exercise that I was doing to try to understand my own writing. And it wasn't until, and and it was very fruitful. It helped me see (laughs) some of the things that were part of the process of writing, but that I didn't Uh, tend to think about or think we're going to take up time when they actually took quite a lot of time. So uh, that really was for my own use. And it wasn't until after I had gotten tenure, and I was thinking about, okay, you know, what, what do I really want to do now that I have, you know, hit all the benchmarks, and I've done what was required of me. And I was thinking a lot about the craft of writing. I was reading a lot about the craft and the process um, and I I just saw all this literature that sort of showed that all of the struggles that I'd gone through were very well understood by people who study writing uh, and I was I was pretty frustrated by that and and wondering, you know, where had they been <laughs> my whole entire academic life? Um and so that's sort of how the book began. I had this set of things I'd come to understand. And then I had this this set of literature that 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 really shined a light on what it was that I had been experiencing. And um the two came together in this book that was sort of, you know, it was kind of unexpected actually. You
0: tell us that the book is not a writer's guide but a writer's companion.
1: Mm. Do you want to share that distinction with us? Yes and you know I'm glad you asked about this because this was actually something that I did not realize on my own. It's something that was pointed out to me um, in the last set of reviews that I received from the press and it's helpful to know that when you publish a book with sage <laughs> they get a lot of reviews so the i i'm almost certain that the number of reviewers i had for the proposal um i think it was 10 people which i found completely overwhelming at the time and there were seven reviewers um, who gave me feedback in the last draft that i submitted and one of them said that this was their experience of the book, that that when they were reading it, it felt like um, they were being, you know, that they had a companion, but they also pointed out to me things that they thought that I could do differently to really strengthen that part of the book or that, I guess, that experience of the book. And when I read that, it it was the strangest thing. It was as though the person articulated something that I, I'd i wanted to do, but hadn't clearly conceived on my own. Um, and once they pointed it out to me, then I was able to go back to the revisions and really reread everything while asking myself the question, is this paragraph, is this section, is this chapter accompanying the reader or is it telling the reader what to do which i never ever want to be doing so i really appreciated that because i was intimidated by the number of reviews i received and it really changed my experience to see to remember that reviewers when they are reviewing professionally and appropriately can really help you see your book in ways that you are not able to see on your own because you're too close to it. You tell us in the book that there are
0: many ways of getting stuck in our writing. And you take us through four forms of being stuck that you've seen in your fellow academics, in your work as a coach, that you experienced yourself. Um, But when we get to chapter six, you take us through another kind of being stuck, which is when we misinterpret writing difficulties as personal failures. In chapter six, you take us through structural and institutional reasons why our writing life might be so hard for us. I was thinking when you were introducing yourself and talking about going through tenure and being a faculty member, that chapter six may have been born
1: quite a bit out of lived experience? That's an interesting question. I so I actually think that it was lived out of maybe the best way to put it is to say out of a contradiction. And what I mean is, I experienced all the ways that the culture of academia emphasizes productivity and emphasizes getting work out at a rate that oftentimes is does not feel healthy or doesn't match the pace that your project will go. Um, and I experienced all of the fears about what was going to happen if I didn't produce at this rate and was I going to be able to keep my job. And, and I experienced that as someone who started her position, unsure, actually, uh, whether or not I wanted to be an academic. And I sort of came in and I said, I'm going to try this out. And if, it, if I don't like it, if it doesn't fit me Uh, you know, I'm not going to do it. If it's too stressful, I'm going to, I'm not going to do it. And I, I completely lost that perspective. (laughs) I completely, you know, I'm someone who you put a set of standards in front of me, and I try to meet them. And it's and, and, and I'm highly influenced by the, the the desire to excel. Mm -hmm. And I, and so I am someone who did experience, I think, in graduate school and in my position, um, a kind of forgetting about what my priorities really were. I also experienced all of that in the in the loving embrace of the most amazing set of colleagues that you could ever ask for. I mean. Um, I was in an African-American studies department. I had a 100% appointment in the AFAM department, so I didn't have to navigate, um, you know, being in both poli-sci and in AFAM. The department was full of, and still is, full of a set of scholars who just do amazing work. They're activists, they're scholars. um, They have full and beautiful lives outside of the work that they do and they were deeply committed to protecting and mentoring junior faculty. And so I say all that to say one I often forget to I often forget that when people hear me talk about this that it might seem like this is a veiled criticism of my department or my colleagues when it's not actually I'm actually pointing out that you can be surrounded by people who support you and you can be in a very um, protected environment. And the cultural expectations that come in um, with academia, the, the structure of assessment all still exist, even in the, um, in the presence of a supportive community. And that is part of the reason why I think I was successful and why I emphasize in that final chapter the importance of building a community of support that isn't just about making sure that you write and publish at a certain pace, that we have to have this other form of community that that surrounds us with a critical understanding of You know, the outrageous demands that academia makes on scholars and support in finding a way through that. And you share
0: with us in chapter six about the importance of community, so much so that I wrote community in all caps on a sticky note and set it aside for myself. I often find in this job of getting to read books that there are things that stand out for me and I put them on a sticky note and they go forward on my journey. And your emphasis on community is something that will be going forward with me And you talk about things that can happen within community, particularly as writers and in naming and sharing the struggles and in normalizing that writing is hard. Do you want to talk about how, when we come together as a writing community and with a like-minded purpose, we can name some of these struggles and take them out of being, oh, it must be just me. I must not be the writer. I thought I was and into this is how we go on this journey.
1: Yeah, so I know that community is a word that a lot of writing coaches talk about and um, that if you are an academic who's searching for some solutions, you probably hear about this a lot. And um, typically the kind of community that scholars hear most about is an accountability community where the idea is that you share what you are planning to do, planning to get done um, with a group of people who are supportive and um, who are maybe in you know your same situation and you all go off and do your work and then you, you meet regularly to share the extent to which you were able to achieve what you wanted to achieve. And this is a great strategy. Um, it's something that has only become popular right, over the maybe last 10, 15 years of, um, of, you know, conversations about writing. And it's, I think, very helpful when your entire focus is on getting things done. I have also found that when scholars are struggling with fears or self-doubt, when they're struggling with a strong sense of isolation that um gives them the impression that they are the only people who are struggling with whatever is in their way with their writing there's a different kind of community that can um can be helpful around those particular issues and I don't know if I actually use this word in the book, but the way that I have come to think about it is that it is a community of accompaniment, that we are standing alongside one another as we go through the actual experience of writing. And I suggest that one of the nice things about accompanying one another in this way is that we can develop uh, what is what's referred to as oppositional consciousness. And this is just uh, an awareness that the conditions that we're facing are, are problematic, that they're unjust, and developing a concurrent kind of commitment to changing those conditions. Now, I am borrowing this concept from social movement theory. So I think it's important to to point out that I I don't think that academics who are trying to get (laughs) their writing done are uh, uh, one-to-one equal to uh, civil rights activists, for example, right? That's not my point. My point is that this idea of oppositional consciousness and its four components really captures a lot of what I started to see scholars who had come to, see their writing situation differently, come to rely on their process, and really change their relationship to writing so that they weren't so intimidated by it and didn't feel like there were so few few possibilities for them. So just to say very briefly, the, the four components of this kind of oppositional writer's consciousness are being clear that you're a writer, having an identity as a writer, and understanding that as separate from your identity as a scholar or a researcher or teacher, um, that's the first component. The second is being able to clearly identify what is the unfair, uneven element of the situation that you're in as a writer, uh, the, the conditions that you face as someone trying to get their writing done. Um, the third component is literally just refusing to comply <laughs> with those conditions, which, you know, I'm I'm going through these briefly, but this is very difficult. This is not something that comes easily uh, when you're under pressure um, to get things out, when you're worried about tenure, when you think you're not going to get full and there's no other way to get a promotion. Um, so refusing to comply is a pretty... It, it, it's three short easy words but quite difficult for us um, and then a fourth component is seeing shared struggle and part of what happens when we don't just come back to a community and account to them after the writing is over but when we actually write together when we write and reflect together when we share those reflections with one another when we engage in social writing is that those uh, four components of oppositional consciousness are much are are likely to occur i have seen them occur uh, quite a lot in the forms of of writing community that i'm talking about and i i guess i should say that that process the coming together in writing and then reflecting on the writing together is what many scholars refer to as social writing and there are lots of forms of social writing obviously the one that i'm most enthusiastic about is retreat writing because that's what happens when we come together as a group um but that's not the only way for that form of community that form of social writing to take place if that makes sense
0: it does I'm also a fan of um, writing retreats on the process that can happen. Um, one of the things you tell us early on in the book is that you at one point were looking back at your own journals. They were old journals from long ago, and you were shocked to discover that there was a time in your life when you'd still loved writing. And that resonates with me and I'm sure it was with many listeners because we may remember as a fact that we used to love to write or we used to love to read, but we don't feel that joy in it anymore, or we seldom do. And throughout the book, you let us know that writing is a process. It will have challenges. What you want is for those challenges not to derail us anymore. And you, you name various forms of being stuck that we can go through. Um, one is not writing at all. One is side writing, which you call work procrastination. I love that way of thinking about it. Um, there's binge writing and there's endless writing. And one of the things you want us to do, instead of falling into these four sort of pitfalls, is to get back to our own unique process, our own natural pace and rhythm of writing. So many of us have gotten well-meaning advice from someone we believe knew more than we did about how we should write. How do we get back to our own rhythm and pace and honor the writer that is inside of us?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think it helps, first of all, to, to just remember what writing process is, right? It, it's just the steps that we take to get from ideas in our head to words on the page. And so often when scholars are, are thinking about what they think of, what they think counts as writing, they mean getting words down on the page. So more words or maybe fewer words Um, as long as the document looks a little bit cleaner. Uh, But writing includes a lot of different (laughs) things. I mean, most, much of writing, I can't say most, but much of writing happens before we are even ready to, you know, turn something into a a three-sentence paragraph, much less a whole section or a whole chapter. So, so. In answering your question about sort of how to get back to whatever we do naturally, the first thing is to just to recognize that process is pretty expansive and it's just what you tend to do. Um, And the second thing I'll say before I, I more directly answer your question is often we have a way of going from idea in our heads to words on a page that we either learned early on and have forgotten about, or we learned early on. And it's so natural to us that now it's a form of tacit knowledge. So tacit knowledge is what we know without realizing that we know it or without really being able to articulate what we know about it. And so that's part of the reason it's so difficult to draw on because it's it's not always explicit for us. And especially um, when it's not explicit, it makes it a little bit harder to trust, right? So to directly answer your question, I suggest sort of a simple principle, but the exercise is a little bit more elaborate that what we need to do when we want to uncover this tacit knowledge about how do you, Christina, get from ideas in your head to words on a page is that we can really be helped by reflection. And in particular, I suggest reflecting on what a writing metaphor might be for us that captures what the experience is. When we go through the steps of thinking you know, what, what is, what is writing like for us? What does it feel like for us? What is our experience like? Um, We're able to uncover not just what we do as writers, but also how we experience the doing. And it typically is in looking at how we experience the doing emotionally that we're able to see you know, how do we, where and how do we get stuck in some of those ways that you you mentioned just a few minutes ago?
0: You share some of the metaphors that people have come up with on your writing retreats. They've likened it to weeding a garden and to, to other things. How do these metaphors help us in visualizing and understanding
1: our own process? Yeah, that is such a great question. So first of all, uh, you know metaphors. We use metaphors all the time. Anybody's a teacher, you know. We're we're probably, I was going to say obsessed with metaphors. That's not quite right, but we we probably rely on them more than we actually realize because metaphors help us see uh, the original phenomenon that we're interested in more clearly by comparison by comparing it to something that. Uh, is familiar or that feels easier than than the than the phenomenon we're trying to describe, right? So, so that's part of it. It's just uh, in the nature of the device itself that it 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 helps us notice dimensions of um, the phenomenon in a way that we wouldn't have on our own, um, because we're we're essentially describing our writing in terms of another thing, right? uh so so that's part of what it is it's also the case that metaphors can really capture the the feeling of the thing that we're trying to describe it can capture the emotional dimension of the experience in a way that we're not really invited to do in academia in general, Uh, that's, you know, talking about emotions and and accepting that they are a part of both the research and the writing process. That's just not something that's part of, uh, you know, academic professional culture. And so it just gives you a space to recognize the technical dimensions. You know, when I first write, you know, an idea down, maybe I outline it, or maybe I mind map it, right? So those are the technical dimensions. But it also gives us this opportunity to look into, okay, uh, that comes really easily for me. But when I get to the place where I have to translate that outline into prose, oh, I notice that actually, that's the moment when I start checking to see what's going on on tiktok or um all of a sudden i have this urgent need to get the dishes done or whatever it is that we do uh when we're a little bit afraid and worried that something's not going to go right with the writing so that's why i love the metaphor and i'll tell you christina i was i was actually quite nervous (laughs) when i first started Teaching this technique, and I would do a lot of hemming and hawing, and you know, trying to prepare people because I thought it was too woo-woo for academics, and I thought you know people were going to be up in arms and think this was silly. And of course, exactly the opposite has happened, which is I you know I think people really enjoy it. It's kind of fun, and it's also really fruitful, and it reveals things they're not expecting. So, um, if anything, now I have to warn people. Instead of trying to, you know, soothe myself and and explain away why I think it's legit to ask people to, you know, examine their writing metaphor, I now have to prep people and say, you know, this may bring up a lot of feelings. So know that that happens, know that it's okay. You're not doing it wrong. You're actually probably doing it right uh, because it really it can really be something that touches people in a way that they, they're they not prepared for.
0: You tell us in the book that writing chaos is a natural part of writing. You also let us know that struggling comes with the territory. In various places in the book, you name what some of the core fears are. Um, one is that we are afraid we're falling too far behind. Another is that we're afraid we're getting it wrong. Um, so there is an emotional component to the book and there's a catharsis in having you be the one to lay out the fears for us. We don't have to say, why am I afraid you have laid it right? You've told the truth right there on the page for us. Um, and for me, that was a frankness that sometimes isn't in other writing companions or writing guides. Um. Was part of your work with the retreats what helped you know that it was important to point writers towards looking at their feelings as they work? Yeah, you know, it's
1: funny. So when I when I first wrote my own writing metaphor, um, that was not a part of the metaphor. Trying to explore feelings was not something I was even thinking about. And then and as I said, that was when I was a junior faculty member. And then when I first started teaching this strategy, when I had just started Inkwell in 2015, I think, 2015, 2016, I think was the first time I taught it. I don't think I was focused on that then either, but one, it kept coming up when I taught this particular workshop. And so that was the first time I saw that there was something missing. And then in 2017, um, I had been leading Inkwell for a couple years. And when I first started, I would give individual coaching to each person who came to the retreat. And I, I'm pretty certain I did it for an hour every single day of the five-day retreat. <laughs> and when i say that now it sounds so ridiculous because what i quickly realized was that was exhausting that i was urging scholars to be mindful of their energy to not work too long but i hadn't realized that when i when i set up a schedule like this for our week long retreats i was essentially because we were all eating our meals together and I was doing all this coaching, I was working a 12 hour day. And I, the reason I began with that model is because I started leading writing retreats when I was still a faculty member and we did them on campus. So, you know, uh, people would come in in the morning and leave in the evening. We weren't eating all our meals together. You know, I was going home at the end of the night. And so it wasn't as taxing. And then when I started doing it, when we were away in a remote location and sharing all our meals, you know, it took me a couple of years to realize, oh, wait, this is unsustainable. I can't do this. So I say all that to say in 2017, I changed the format of the retreats and I instead held a workshop in the beginning of the day Everyone goes and writes. We still eat all our meals together because we love each other because everybody comes to Inkwell Retreat is great. And then um, at the end of the day, there's also another coaching session. And so I was terrified to do this because I was spending so much time having individual conversations with people who really felt uncomfortable and afraid to expose themselves to others and I and I was worried that Inkwell was going to just fail when I made this change but I could see that there was no other alternative for me and it was exactly the opposite it was actually the experience of being together you know, in a facilitated community, right. And like not lumping a bunch of people together and just hoping up for the best, but, you know, I very deliberately structure the retreats in a way that invite people to be appropriately, um, revealing to feel safe before they do that, to, um, to be able to see that they're not alone without anyone having to you know, in the beginning, share anything they don't want to share. Um, and then people get more and more comfortable and then they share more and more. When I saw that, I realized, oh my goodness, this one-on-one thing that I've been doing, um, it's actually been keeping people from being able to see that they're not alone. And it was it was both teaching the workshop um, of developing a writing metaphor and seeing this missing piece and then leading these retreats and watching people just blossom once they realized they weren't alone, that made me see absolutely there is a power in retreats that I had not fully recognized until that moment.
0: And there's a power in the collective naming of what's holding us back and knowing that while each of our process is a bit different and how we experience our stuckness is a bit different, it's happening to all of us, the book um, takes us through perhaps much of what we can do if we were on one of your retreats. And in naming the different fears that we face in our writing, we can understand why we're stuck in different ways. Um, And you offer various ways for us to look at that and get through that stuckness. Towards the end of the book, you also offer us ways of taking care of ourselves during this process, such as having kindness, viewing this with a spirit of experimentation, knowing that the challenges are normal and they're part of the process, but also making time to play and that our form of play cannot be a form of work. We have to really, what you call have immersion in play. We're starting to run out of time. Can you talk a bit about the self-care of making sure there's time for play so that we can actually come back to our writing refreshed and able to do it?
1: Yes. And, you know, this is an area that is very hard for me. This is something I'm always going to have to work on and be very deliberate about and slip up on. And so, and then come back. So I think about it a lot. And what we know about the the writing process is that once we have completed a big project, we've submitted the draft, we have finished the book, um we've sent it off to our committee to see what they think um then we have this period that um I refer to as hibernation where we need to to lie low we need to take a rest um we need to I I I think one nice way of thinking about it is um that we kind of lie fallow, right? Like land that's been used so that the nutrients can build back up. And that, so we know that, 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 um, that's an important part of the writing process. One that academics, I think, have a harder time acknowledging and respecting than other kinds of creative people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny that, that, that exists. And again, another, um, uh, another set of work that we often don't hear about. But that work tells us, strangely enough that if we want to get the full benefit of rest, then we want to concentrate on activities that are truly relaxing, activities that that deeply engage us, right? So they're they're not watching TV and half paying attention, right? but we're actually, fully immersed in the activity that we feel like we have a sense of um, control over whether or not we'll do it. We have confidence that we'll be able to do it well. And I name all these things because anyone who's ever been to an inkwell retreat or has studied flow knows that almost everything I just named is also a component of flow. So what's sort of strange about it is Exactly the experience that we're trying to have when we're working, not exactly, but similar to the experience we want to have in working, which is deep, you know, focused immersion is what we're looking for when we rest as well with a little bit more relaxation. And that tends to fill us so much that it makes us ready for the next stretch of work that we need to engage in.
0: The title of the book Becoming the Writer That You Already Are affirms that we are writers and the book takes us through reclaiming and figuring out our own natural writing process, you encourage us to turn inward, you say that following our own process is an act of power. Each chapter is broken down with various tips, you name the fears that lead to the various forms of stuckness that we're feeling, you encourage us to find community. And to take this book with us on our writing journey as a companion and not a guide, you are mindful that you don't want to tell anybody how to write, but be with them in their process and encourage them along the way. What do you hope this episode will spark for listeners?
1: Mm, That is a great question. I guess what I always want to spark for people is a kind of relaxing of your judgment of yourself and all of the attendant feelings that come with that the feeling of shame and worry and you know aloneness i i i hope that that's what what this book and what our conversation does for people and and once that relaxation has happened maybe moving a little bit closer to a spirit of curiosity, you know, what's actually happening? What am I experiencing? What am I already doing well? Because curiosity has a kind of openness that allows for whatever answers you may find without judgment. So I think that's what I want. Just our critical faculties are fantastic, (laughs) but they don't need to be applied in our exploration of our writing process. And so just a little bit of loosening of that. That's what I would hope.
0: Dr. Michelle Boyd, thank you so much for being here today and sharing with us from your book, Becoming the Writer You Already Are. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I hope you will please join us again.